Welcome to the second lecture on Beowulf. We'll be completing the poem today. Uh, next time, we'll be doing the first half of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Uh, I'd like to begin by looking at the sword that Beowulf uses to kill Grendel's mother. He first sees that sword around line 1557. It says, Then he saw a blade that boded well a sword in her armory, an ancient heirloom from the days of the giants, an ideal weapon, one that any warrior would envy, but so huge and heavy of itself, only Beowulf could wield it in battle. So notice this is a sword, an ancient sword, and he says specifically it's from the days of the giants. Now the, the giants have been mentioned before in Beowulf. They were mentioned when uh, it talked about the genealogy of Grendel, that he was one of these monsters uh, like like the giants. Uh, so this comes from that ancient time when, when giants roamed the earth. Now, after Beowulf kills Grendel's mother, the blade of the sword melts away. Look around line uh, 1605. Meanwhile, the sword began to wilt into gory icicles, to slather and thaw. It was a wonderful thing, the way it all melted, as ice melts, when the father eases the fetters off the frost and unravels the water ropes. He who wields power over time and tide, he is the true Lord. Now, I want you to think about this imagery for, for a moment. Um... It's physically describing the, 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 the blade melts when it comes in contact with the, the blood of Grendel. Remember, Beowulf goes in and chops Grendel's head off, and after he does, when the sword uh, has that, touches that acidic blood, it, the blade of it melts away. Um, and notice that the image he uses is, is of ice melting, the thaw in the spring when the father eases the fetters off the frost. So that's an image of, of renewal, of, you know, the image of springtime. You know, winter is over. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a powerful thing. And it ends with a reference to God. Saying God has power over tide and time. So this destruction of the sword is linked to uh, to God's plan and to the to the seasons, to the way the seasons unfold. Uh, now, Beowulf will take the hilt of this sword and give it to Hrothgar. And uh, let's look at that when he he gives the sword to Hrothgar. Look at line uh, sixteen eighty-eight. It was engraved all over and showed how war first came into the world and the flood destroyed the tribe of giants. They suffered a terrible severance from the Lord. The Almighty made the waters rise, drowned them in the deluge for retribution. All right, so the image on the, the sword hilt is again about the giants. It's about the destruction of the giants through a flood. Now, this may be an allusion to the biblical flood. It may be 
to a, a uh, mythological tradition from the, uh, the old Nordic culture. Uh, but the point of it in the story is it's about the destruction of the giants and the destruction of the giants through nature directed by God. Now notice how that chimes together with the destruction of Beowulf's, the sword Beowulf uses. Both of them are water imagery. Uh, both of them talk about the power of God. And so the sword is, is linked up to that. It's, I think, significant that no sword is able to hurt Grindel or Grindel's mother except for this ancient sword from the time of the giants. Uh, and that sword is linked symbolically with the power of God and the power of nature and in some even more fundamental sense with the power of change, of transience. Things don't last. Uh, even this ancient heirloom melts away. Uh, the ice melts away. Uh, that's a particularly powerful image if you remember that this is from the uh, from Nordic culture. This is from Denmark and Sweden where the, the ice is a real potent force in their lives. Uh, but even that melts away uh, and uh, under the power of God. Uh, now that that idea comes in through in the poem in a lot of different ways about uh, about transience, about how temporary uh, even very powerful things are. And you can see another example of it if you look at the speech that Hrothgar makes to Beowulf after his victory. Now you might expect this is you know this is the big victory moment. This is when uh, uh, Beowulf has killed two monsters and uh, Beowulf has saved Hrothgar and Hrothgar's people and you might expect that the speech that Hrothgar would give him would be about what a great hero he is and indeed it does start off that way uh, around line uh, 1700. Uh, he says that, you know, your fame has gone far and wide, you are known everywhere, and you're great. Uh, but immediately, then he, he brings in the the character of Haramod, line 1709. Haramod was different. The way he behaved to Etchwala's sons, his rise in the world brought little joy to the Danish people, only death and destruction. So Haramod is a negative example. He said, you know, it's basically don't be like Haramod. You need to be, he was, um, he was a bad king. He didn't share with his people. He didn't, he wasn't generous with his people. He didn't look after them. Um, and he says, so learn from this, around line 1722, learn from this and understand true values. I, who tell you, have wintered into wisdom. Now, there's another image of, of time and nature and, and ice wintered into wisdom. He's grown old. He's gained this knowledge. Um, he says, It's a great wonder how Almighty God in his magnificence favors our race with rank and scope and the gift of wisdom. His sway is wide. Sometimes he allows the mind of man to disti of distinguished birth to follow its bent, grants him fulfillment and felicity on earth, and forts to command in his own country. He permits him to lord it in many lands, 
until the man in his unthinkingness forgets that it will ever end for him. Now that's the important point that that, uh, Rothgar makes in this speech. Uh, You're at the top of your game. you're, You're a hero. You're a victor. Don't think that that's going to be permanent. You know, the, the, the good times come to an end. And if you forget that the good times will come to an end, you become like Haramod. He says he indulges his desires. Illness and old age mean nothing to him. His mind is untroubled by envy or malice of the thoughts of enemies with their hate-honed swords. The whole world conforms to his will. He is kept from the worst until an element of overweening enters him and takes hold while the soul's guard, its sentry, drowses, grown too distracted. So that's the danger. If you forget that things just melt away, that the the, uh, the ice melts, that the flood carries away the giants, that all of these things, or even uh, formidable things, are just temporary. If you forget that your good fortune is just temporary, you can uh, fall into this kind of arrogance. Um, and so he tells him line uh, oh, 1657. This is Hrothgar talking to Beowulf. He says, O flower of warriors, beware of that trap. Choose, dear Beowulf, the better part, eternal rewards. Do not give way to pride. For a brief while your strength is in bloom, but it fades quickly, and soon there will follow illness or the sword to lay you low, or a sudden fire or surge of water or jabbing blade or javelin from the air or repellent age. Your piercing eye will dim and darken and death will arrive, dear warrior, to sweep you away. So this is a very kind of poignant reminder of mortality. Um, You're not going to live forever. You're, 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 you're a strong, you're the strongest warrior right now. You won't always be. And you need to always remember that. That's, that's a, a deep theme that runs throughout the, the poem. Um, and then Rothgar relates what he's just told Beowulf to his own situation. He says, just so I ruled the Ring Danes country for 50 years. He said, I came to believe my enemies had faded from the face of the earth. Still, what happened was a hard reversal from bliss to grief. Grindel struck after lying in wait. So Rothgar, he was a good king. It's not that he was um, a a bad king. He was uh, generous to his people. He built Herat for them. Uh, He he, uh, kept them safe. But that didn't last. Grindel came and took it away from him until Beowulf came and rescued him. So the, the poem is, is constantly reminding us of the, uh, the, the tragic potential of things. There's all, all, things can always go wrong, and you always have to remember that. Uh, you, you're blind if you think just because it's going well now that it always will be. And this gets at a, a philosophy, uh, uh, an outlook uh, that is very Nordic, uh, very deeply woven into Norse mythology and culture. 
And this was the idea that uh, there would be a great battle at the end of the world, uh, that the, the gods and men who were on the, the side of right would be facing the giants and the monsters. And what's interesting about the Nordic, mytholo Nordic mythology is that the giants and the monsters are going to win. That in the end, the, the, the gods and the, and the heroes are all are going to be conquered. But that's not a reason not to fight. In fact, that's the reason to fight. You're, you're, um, there, there's a phrase that Tolkien uses in the Lord of the Rings that really sums up this Nordic idea, and that is, we fight the long defeat. As we're fighting, but we're not imagining that we're going to have an ultimate victory. We're fighting knowing that death is certain for all of us, but that just means makes it more glorious that we fight so hard. Uh, and so here in this moment of Beowulf's greatest triumph, this kind of peak in the poem, Hrothgar is there to remind him that his ultimate destiny is death, and he always needs to remember that. All right. Now, in the next section of the poem, Beowulf returns home. He goes back to his father, Hilak, and uh, retells the story. He, he kind of tells the story, and I'm not going to go over that in great detail. Uh, it, it repeats a lot of what we've already gone over, but uh, there's one little thing I want to, to point out, and this is when Beowulf is talking about, this is around line 2020, uh, he mentions Hrothgar's daughter, Freyawaru. And uh, Freyawaru is uh, uh, the young bride-to-be to the gracious Ingeld. Now, this is a, a political marriage. Uh, he says, the friend of the shieldings favors her betrothal. The guardian of the kingdom sees good in it and hopes this woman will heal old wounds and grievous feuds. But generally, the spear is prompt to retaliate when a prince is killed, no matter how admirable the bride may be. So he, he's saying, here's the, you know, Rothgar has a great idea here. He's going to marry his daughter to a, a man that he once fought with, and that will help heal the, the tensions between them. But Beowulf says that's not going to go very well. Uh, someone is going to, you know, point out, and he says around line uh, uh, 2040, then an old spearman will speak while they are drinking, having glimpsed some heirloom that, br that brings alive memories of the massacre. His mood will darken and heart-stricken in the stress of his emotion he will begin to test a young man's temper and stir up trouble. Right? So he says that even, you know, even if he has this queen, those old grudges aren't going to die. Uh, and it, you know, it turns out that he's right. Um, this is, again, uh, the, uh, a recurring feature in this poem that, okay, things are good. Freya Waru is married to Ingeld and they're having this feast but things can turn bad, and they probably will. 
uh, and you have to be uh, aware of that. Whatever, however good your intentions are, uh, the the fate weird uh, is going to work things out in a certain way for you. Now, in the next section, I should mention the uh, Norton anthology breaks the poem up into these labeled sections. It has little brackets in this next section, The Dragon Wakens. Uh, these are not at all part of the original poem. Uh, the original poem ha- had some numbered sections that sometimes end in mid-sentence. It's a very strange uh, uh, organization. Uh, but these are, are editorial. They kind of help us uh, break up the story for uh, modern readers, but they're not part of the original poem. Uh, but if you go to that section, line uh, 2200, a lot was to happen in later days in the fury of battle. Helak fell, and, and the shelter of uh, Herodred's shield proved useless against the fierce aggression of the Shilfings. Ruthless swordsmen, seasoned campaigners, they came against him, and his conquering nation with a cruel force cut him down so that afterwards the wide kingdom reverted to Beowulf. He ruled it well for fifty winters, grew old and wise and ward- as warden of the land. So here the poem very quickly jumps ahead fifty years. It also mentions the tragedy, you know, that uh, Helak is killed in battle. Now, throughout this second half of the poem, there are these uh, allusions, sometimes very elliptical, to this war that was going on between the Gats and the Swedes. Um, and we hear, this is one example, of, we hear several of them. It's never given in a, in a clear chronological way because it was assumed the original audience knew all about that. You didn't have to give them all the details of it. Uh, it's like today, you know, you don't have to tell people that uh, uh, Hitler was the bad guy in World War II. People just know that. If you mention Hitler, they know what you're talking about. Um, and, and so some of this can be difficult to follow. Uh, but the poem is jumping ahead. You know, Beowulf, I don't know, 20 maybe, when uh, he, he killed Grendel and Grendel's mother. And now it's now he's 70. He's a king. Uh, and we jump ahead from his youth to his old age. Uh, And the final challenge that Beowulf has to face is another monster. This time, it's a dragon. And the dragon is just sleeping there. Now, dragons, uh, he's living in this hoard of treasure, uh, this this barrow, this mound, uh, and keeping it away from everyone else. Now, notice that that makes him very much like the image of the bad king, Haramod. He's, he's a hoarder. Uh, he doesn't want to give out or use his treasure. So once again, the monsters become a, kind of an amplified version of negative things in the, the culture. Uh, now, this dragon gets awakened because uh, or the dragon awakes uh, because someone steals something for from him. This is uh, line uh, uh, 2216. He had handled and removed a gem-studded goblet. It gained him nothing. Though, uh, though with a, th- a thief's wiles, 
he had outwitted the sleeping dragon. So while the dragon's asleep, this thief goes in there and steals a cup. The, the dragon notices immediately that one of his cups is missing. Now remember, this is a huge hoard of treasure, but he notices that one cup is gone, and he goes on a rampage. Um, now, before we get to the rampage, though, the poem backs up, and it has this very, again, this odd kind of structure where it will go forward and then fill us in on the background and then move back forward with the story. And in this case, it goes back and tells us how this treasure all got there, that there was this people who died out, and the last one of them put all of the treasure of his people into this mound, and the dragon later found it. And I want to look at uh, this this last survivor of this, this unnamed people uh, and his speech. It starts around line 2247. He says, Now, earth, hold what earls once held, and heroes can no more. It was mined from you first by honorable men. My own people have been ruined in war. One by one, they went down to death, looked their last on sweet life in the hall. I am left with nobody to hear, nobody to bear a sword or to burnish plated goblets, put a sheen on the cup. The companies have departed. The hard helmet hasped with gold will be stripped of its loops, and the helmet shiner, who should polish the metal of the uh, war mask, sleeps. The coat of mail that came through all fights, through shield collapse and cut of sword, decays with the warrior. Now, nor may webbed mail range far and wide on the warlord's back beside his mastered troops. No trembling harp, no tuned timber, no tumbling hawk swerving through the hall, no swift horse pawing the courtyard. Pillage and slaughter have emptied the earth of entire peoples. So this is, a, a, again, a very poignant, uh, almost lyrical meditation on the, that theme of loss. Uh, here's the last survivor of this people, and he paints a beautiful picture of the the joy in the hall. It says, but he paints it in saying that it's all gone. There's none of that anymore. It's all been wiped away, and I'm the last one. So again, the poem reminds us of of mortality, of transience, of how temporary things are. Um, so that's where, who left all of this treasure, and then the dragon came in and, and uh, guarded it. But when he finds some of it is missing, he goes out and attacks the uh, uh, the, the Geats. Uh And so they have to bring this news to Beowulf. Now, look at Beowulf's reaction when he gets the news. This is around line uh, uh, 23-27. It threw the hero into deep anguish and darkened his mood. The wise man thought he must have thwarted ancient ordinance of the eternal Lord, broken his commandment. So his first thought is, this is something that I've done. 
And there's no indication of that. This is, in fact, we know it wasn't anything Beowulf did. Is this this guy stole a, a, a cup, and that's what started it? But he feels guilty. He feels responsible, and he has a, a has a marvelous all iron shield made because he knows dragons breathe fire. The wooden shields they usually use aren't going to help. And notice it says also here, after many trials. He was destined to face the end of his days in this mortal world, as was the dragon, for all his long leasehold on the treasure. Now, this is, uh, it's not trying to make a surprise out of Beowulf dying when he faces the dragon. It tells us this long before that uh, that happens, that, that Beowulf and the dragon are both going to die. So the, the interest in the story is not... Well, what is going to happen, but the significance of it. it. It takes away any kind of mystery about all of that. All right, in the next section, Beowulf attacks the dragon. Uh, we hear him talking about, well, look at uh, um, 2518. He says, I would rather not use a weapon if I knew another way to grapple with the dragon and make good my boast as I did against Grindel in days gone by. But I shall be meeting molten venom in the fire he breathes, so I go forth in mail shirt and shield. I won't shift a foot when I meet the cave guard. What occurs on the wall between the two of us will uh, turn out as fate, overseer of men, decides. I am resolved. I scorn further words against the sky-born foe. Men-at-arms, remain here on the barrow safe in your armor, to see which one of us is better in the end at beating wounds in deadly in a deadly fray, at bearing wounds in a deadly fray. This fight is not yours, nor is it up to any man except me to measure his strength against the monster or prove his worth. I shall win the gold by my courage, or else mortal combat, doom of battle, will bear your lord away. So, Beowulf is, you know, he's brought his a group of his soldiers with him, but he's saying, this is just my fight. And I wish, you know, if I could, I would just face him without any weapons, without any armor, the way that I faced Grindel. But I, I can't. This is a dragon. He breathes fire. I'm going to need my mail. I'm going to need my shield. I'm going to need my sword. But I don't want you to risk your lives. You stay here. I'll go fight the dragon for you. Um, so you can read this in, I think, and it has been read in two ways, is, is Beowulf, is this a sign of Beowulf's generosity, uh, that he's willing to sacrifice himself for his people? Or is it a sign of arrogance? I'm going to go and all by myself do this. I think you can see, you know, uh, both ways of reading it. Uh, which makes his character kind of interesting. It's not a kind of a simple uh, white hat, black hat character that you've got here. Now, look at how it describes the battle between Beowulf and the dragon. Line uh, 2565. Each antagonist struck terror in the other. Unyielding, the lord of his people loomed by his tall shield, sure of his ground, while the serpent looped and unleashed itself. 
Swaddled in flames, it came gliding and flexing and racing towards its fate. Yet his shield defended the renowned leader's life and limb for a shorter time than he meant it to. That final day was the first time when Beowulf fought and fate denied him glory in battle. So here they come, and again, some beautiful description there of the, the, the two of them. But um, again, it tells you Beowulf's not going to win. Line 2584. The glittering sword, infallible before that day, failed when he unleashed it, as it never should have. Uh, so his, his sword isn't effective the way it has been before. Um, and it's looking looking very bad. Uh, before long, the fierce contenders clashed again. The horde guardian took heart, inhaled and swelled up and got a new wind. He who one, had once ruled with was furled in fire and had to face the worst. No help or backing was to be had then from his highborn comrades that had ha- that hand-picked troop broke ranks and ran for their lives to the safety of the wood. But within one heart, sorrow welled up. In a man of worth, the claims of kinship cannot be denied. So uh, Beowulf looks like he's losing, and most of his soldiers run away except for one. And this is Wielaf, um, who's a, a new character. He's a, a, He seems to be very young. He seems to be younger maybe than the other soldiers. And notice what it is that inspires him. Line uh, 2604. When he saw his lord tormented by the heat of his scalding helmet, he remembered the bountiful gifts bestowed on him, how well he lived among the warmundings, the freehold he inherited from his father before him. So the thing that comes to his mind is the generosity of the king. And if you remember all the way back, the very beginning of the poem, when it talked about the son of shield chafing, uh, Baal, said that he was very generous in giving gifts, and that's what a prince should do, so that when there's trouble, he'll have allies. And here we see this exactly happening with with Beowulf. And Wielaf says this to his, uh, his comrades, uh, uh, 2633, Wielaf spoke wise and fluent words. I remember that time when mead was flowing, how we pledged loyalty to our lord in the hall promised our ring-giver we would be worth our price, make good the gift of the war-gear, those swords and helmets, as, uh, and, w- as and when his need required it. You remember when we gave all those promises that you know he, he gave us these wonderful gifts and this armor and these swords, and we promised we'll be there to help you. Well, okay, now he needs us. Where are you going? Um, it says, now... The day has come when his, uh, this Lord we serve needs sound men to give him their support. Let us go to him, help our leader through the hot flame and dread of the fire. Um, but the others don't go. It's just we laugh. Uh, and this is showing us so often this poem works through contrasts of, of good and, and, and evil or good and bad, good examples and bad examples. Uh, Wielaf is faithful. He is uh, doing what a, a good uh, uh, nobleman should do for his king. The other ones 
are disgraceful. They run away. They're not going to help Beowulf. All right, let's uh, let's look at the battle uh, around line twenty six seventy seven. Inspired again by the thought of glory, the war king threw his whole strength behind a sword stroke and connected with the skull, and nailing snapped. Nailing is Beowulf's sword. Beowulf's ancient iron-gray sword let him down in the fight. It was never his fortune to be helped in combat by cutting edge of weapon made of iron. When he wielded a sword, no matter how blooded and hard-edged the blade, his hand was too strong. The stroke he dealt, I have heard, would ruin it. He could reap no advantage. Uh, this is, uh, again, the kind of irony of swords in this uh, in this poem. Uh, th- they wind up being ultimately ineffective. Uh, he, he's, he's too strong. He, he actually breaks the sword in trying to destroy the dragon. Um, but with Wielaf's help, he is able to uh, defeat the dragon, but he not before he is uh, uh, caught in the in the dragon's bite and given a fatal wound. Look at uh, 2706. They had killed the enemy. Courage quelled his life. That pair of kinsmen, partners in nobility, had destroyed the foe. So every man should act, be at hand when needed. But now, for the king, this would be the last of his many labors and triumphs in the world. Then the wound dealt by the ground burner earlier began to scald and swell. Beowulf discovered deadly poison superating inside him, surges of nausea, and so, in his wisdom, the prince realized his state and struggled toward a seat on the rampart. So, it's a victory, but it's also a defeat. Uh, and again, that's very much in keeping with the, the theme and tone of this whole poem, that uh, inside every victory it, there lurks a defeat. Uh, he, he has destroyed the dragon, but at the cost of his own life. Uh, now he wants uh, uh, Wilaf to show him the the, the, the treasure. Uh, so Wilaf brings some of it to him and and shows him because this is, uh, you know, this is why it was worthwhile. I mean, he, he got rid of the dragon, but he also has all this treasure that he can bestow upon his people. So there's some benefit that has come from all of this. And look at Beowulf's final words, beginning around line uh, 2795. Uh, I give thanks that I behold the treasure here in front of me and that I have been allowed to leave my people so well endowed on the day of I die. Now that I have bartered my last breath to own this fortune, it is up to you to look after their needs. I can hold out no longer. Order my troops to construct a barrow on the headlands of the coast. After my pyre has cooled, it will loom on the horizon at Ronisness and be a reminder among my people so that in coming times, crews under sail will call it Beowulf's Barrow, as they steer ships across the wide and surround and shrouded waters. So it is is 
uh, his final request after his body is, is burned, that's a pyre, you know, they burn the, the body in the funeral, he wants them to build up a mound on the coast as, as a, almost like a lighthouse. Uh, it'll be a, a navigational marker. So even in his death, Beowulf is thinking about how he can be helpful to his people. Um, and he says to Wilaf, you are the last of us. Again, like the, the last survivor that told the speech about all the treasure in the, in the dragon's hoard. You are the last of us, the only one left of the Wegmundings. Fate swept us away, sent me whole brave, sent my whole brave highborn clan to their final doom. Now I must follow them. So that's the ending of Beowulf. And again, it ends on a tragic note. He, he realizes that this is the end not just of him, but in some ways of his, of his clan, of his people. Uh, remember that Beowulf has no son. He has no heir. Uh, there's no one who's going to continue his name. All right. Uh, now, we laugh after he gets together all the deserters, uh, he gives orders that uh, a messenger go and take this news back to the the people that their king is dead. And that messenger's long speech begins on line uh, 2900. He says, Now the people's pride and love, the lord of the Geats, is laid on his deathbed. And down uh, 2910, now war is looming over our nation. Soon it will be known to Franks and Frisians far and wide that the king is gone. Hostility has been great among the Franks that Helak sallied forth at the head of a war fleet into Friesland. There the Hetwar harried and attacked and overwhelmed him with great odds. The leader in this war gear was laid low fell among followers. That lord did not favor his company with spoils. The Merovingian king has been an enemy to us ever since. Nor do I expect peace or pact-keeping of any sort from the Swedes. Remember Ravenswood. So he's saying, we've got enemies on all sides of us. We've got the the Hetwar and the the Swedes. And Ravenswood is a battle where the the uh, the Geats killed the Swedish king, and he goes and this is again part of that background of the history of war between the Geats and the Swedes. Uh, and he says, "We killed their king. They're going to want to re- revenge. We don't have Beowulf to protect us anymore." Uh, pick it up around line three thousand. So this bad blood between us and the Swedes, this vicious feud, I am convinced is bound to revive. They will cross our borders and attack in force when they find out that Beowulf is dead. Um, and it says that, you know, they're, again, they're, they're kind of doomed. Uh, look around line thirty twenty. In the path of exile they shall walk bereft, bowed under woe now that their leader's laugh is silenced, high spirits quenched. And the narrator says, after all this speech, he got little wrong in what he told and predicted. So here's the, you know, 
again, just as after the the death of Grindel's mother, we don't get a speech from Rothgar about how wonderful things are. He gives a warning. And here, the dragon has been killed, but Beowulf is dead, and worse, because Beowulf is dead, there's no one to protect us from our enemies. Uh, and the narrator says that he's right. Now, of course he is, and the original audience of this poem would have known uh, very well that the that Geats were wiped out by the Swedes. Uh, I mean, there's a Sweden today, there's no Geatland, uh, and that's because there are no Geats anymore. They were wiped out. Beowulf, like that last survivor, uh, there was a dwindling people. They were they were killed off. So the the poem ends very much as the poem began with a funeral. Remember, at the beginning, we had Shield Sheafing was put into a a Viking ship and set out to sea. Here, Beowulf is put on the, the a pyre and his body burned. And look at the line 3150. A gay woman, too, sang out in grief. With hair bound up, she unburdened herself of her worst fears, a wild litany of nightmare and lament. Her nation invaded, enemies on the rampage, bodies in piles, slavery and abasement. Heaven swallowed the smoke. That's a brutal last half line there. She's she's talking about all of these nightmarish things which we know actually are going to happen to them once they're attacked by the Swedes. And what's the response? The smoke just goes up into heaven. That's just the way that things are going to be. Uh, again, it's a very it's a very grim and tragic uh, poem. Um, look at the very very ending. So the Geat people, his hearth companions, sorrowed for the Lord who had been laid low. They said that of all the kings upon earth, he was the man most gracious and fair-minded, kindest to his people, and keenest to win fame. So these are the things that they praise about Beowulf as a great king. Gracious and fair-minded, kind, and that last one, keenest to win fame. That's the, that's literally the final word in the poem, fame. Uh, and Beowulf's keenness to win it, to be known, to be famous, to have glory, is one of the, the things that they admire about him. And I think it's one of the things the poem admires about him. This is uh, a, a man who, even in the face of certain death, uh, at fighting a dragon single-handedly, uh, he, he does that because that's what he has. That's what any of us have. We're, we're in, a, in this world in Beowulf. You're in a world that where death is certain, all you can do is live your life gloriously. And that's what Beowulf does. Uh, he's, he's, he's a hero in that way. And, and I think that part of what makes uh, Beowulf such a, a rich and lasting work of literature is this, uh, this vision of glory and courage that it gives in the, in the face of a, a world that is ultimately uncaring. Uh, Beowulf is, is a hero not because he always wins, but because he is 
going out there and making the sacrifice. If you remember uh, back when he went to fight Grindel and he was there with his men, there's a line in there that says that none of them thought that they would live to see their homeland again, but they were still there doing it. Um, that's that's bravery. That's courage. Now, in that case, it turned out that they were wrong. They did get to go back home. But ultimately, finally, for these warriors and for everyone, the 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 end eventually does come. But that doesn't mean that you don't go down fighting, as Beowulf certainly does. Uh, again, it's a really uh, beautiful poem, and uh, it has a very kind of stark, uh, tragic feeling to it. Uh, but I think a very, very powerful one. All right, next time we're going to start uh, talking about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and we're jumping ahead about 400 years. Uh, Gawain was written around uh, 1400, uh, and like Beowulf, it's an anonymous poem. We don't know who the author was. Uh, Like Beowulf, it survives in only a single manuscript uh, that has come down to us. I want you to think about, as you're reading, a couple of things. First of all, think about the Green Knight. He's described in some considerable detail. And what is he like? I mean, obviously, he's, you'll, you know he's going to be green. Uh, actually, why is he green? And what other details of his description? There's a very long, elaborate description of him. I think about why that's in the poem. What's the significance? What does it describe about the Green Knight? And why is that important? Uh, another thing to look at is the idea of of games in the in the poem. Uh, the Green Knight wants to play a game and think, look at what that game is and and what the rules are and how 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 it's played. Uh, and you will see other kinds of games at the end of the uh, the second section. The the sections are called fits. Uh, so we'll be reading fits one and uh, two for next time. Uh, at, but the end of the second part. Uh, Gawain's host proposes another kind of game, and you'll see some games, and also the idea of of courtesy, of manners, of proper behavior. That comes up repeatedly in the poem. Uh, another thing that does that you should be on the lookout for is the idea of laughter. Notice when and why characters laugh in the poem, and how often they laugh. Uh, that that's a, a kind of a, a theme that goes throughout it. Finally, uh, think about the images of nature in the poem, uh, the, the of the natural world versus the the world of the court and society. How are those juxtaposed and uh, set against each other in the poem? Uh, so that'll be enough to get you to start thinking about uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. We'll go into much more detail in the first two sections of, of Gawain next time. Uh, as always, if you have any questions, uh, please email me at drmarkwamak at gmail.com. I want to thank you again for your attention, and I will talk to you next time. <laughs>